0: past 18 months or so, and, and I was talking to John about uh, what I should preach about, and he said, well, um, here's what I think you should do. Just preach a sermon that is if it were your last and sort of defining statement on earth. Um <laughs> just just do that. I said, well, that, that's all, no problem. Uh, so I thought long and hard um, and told him I could not do it. In fact, no, I'm just kidding. But I, um, I have uh, considered that uh, that worthy um, sort of challenge um, in my sermon today. But I was surprised that he said that at least 45 to 50 minutes of a sermon, I was like, I don't understand. Um, <laughs> that's a joke. I was like, although although it's much longer than, uh, well, anyway, there's another sort of... At any rate, I thought I would give you a little bit of a bio just to put it in context since you don't know me. I mean, not that that's um, that important, uh, but nevertheless, it couldn't hurt because this will, in fact, be my last will and testament <laughs> sermon, so uh, you might as well know where it's coming from. Um, I didn't grow up in the Anglican church. I grew up in Baton Rouge um, and made my way to, uh, uh, to school up in Virginia, Washington, where I met my wife, Liza, Um, And at that point, I was, as if you had told me that I would have someday been ordained in the Anglican church, I would have laughed at you. I would have thought it was the furthest thing possible that I could have imagined. And yet, very shortly upon meeting her, I was introduced to a um, host of of older uh, men who had led the way and were, as I now understand, part of of the growth and the seeding and the development of what we now call the Anglican Church in America, and so I was very quickly grafted into some great luminaries like the late Dr. Peter Moore down in Charleston, and and uh, various other people through uh, through the communion, Bishop Lawrence, and 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 a variety of people who who encouraged me as a young man to come on over and uh, join the join the um, the team, and well, here we are after that, and so it's been quite a journey for us because we made our way uh, from the diocese. Central Florida, uh, in the Episcopal Church, up to Trinity School for Ministry, uh, where we both studied. And then we went from there directly over to Europe, actually, to do pursue a doctorate in systematic theology, um, in part, as I'll explain later, to sort of continue to wrestle through some of these great questions. But works in the church of england for about six years both in berlin and in vienna austria which was a wonderful experience then made our way back here um, before children to the episcopal church up in louisville kentucky where i'd been the rec uh, associate and then rector and then that ran its course, and we found ourselves down here in Christchurch, Mount Pleasant, in the Anglican Diocese of South Carolina. So it's been quite a journey, um, and very uh, educational, and and for the most part enjoyable. Uh, but we are overjoyed and to be here with you all today, and to consider um, this uh, diocese and this collection of churches and the people and the courage and the conviction and the the history and all that has gone into creating uh, this this particular well not just this church, but this collection of churches we have, has been a, um, something that I've observed my entire life and now consider it a great joy to be a part of. So that's a little bit of a nutshell. That's me um, broad brush. But I went to Europe in particular, we went to Europe, I should say, to a very particular and specific theological question. And that was the question of why was it so important that the doctrine of justification by faith alone split the entire Western church? Why was that such a big deal? And if you, you may know that we're about fast approaching the yearly observance of what we call Reformation Sunday on the 31st, which is the, the commemoration of when Martin Luther famously nailed his 95 Theses to the Wittenberg door. So I said, Well, I'm going to go as close to there as possible that I can get into and, and, and sit and, and help try to figure out why was that such a big deal? Why does it remain? such a big deal. With all of the other problems and arguments in the world, why does that still persist as a reason, as it were, to protest? Now, this didn't just come out of nowhere because I actually, uh, very shortly after meeting some of these great Anglican luminaries in my life as a young man, they introduced me in fact to the actual history and formation of the Anglican Church, which was nothing in part the way that I had learned it or the way I had absorbed it. I um, actually, and some of you may know, I was sort of laboring under the the old admonition of the late great Robin Williams who described the Episcopal slash Anglican Church. You may remember this, that it was Catholic light all of the ritual and half the guilt. Do you remember this? Well, that was that actually spoke very clearly to my understanding of what we were, what, what I was considering when Liza and I met, and I couldn't have been more uh, further. That couldn't have been further from the truth. Because when you actually look at the roots in the history of the Anglican Church that our Archbishop Cranmer in particular, not the least of which Nicholas Ridley and, and uh, Hugh Latimer and John Wycliffe and William Tyndale and the, the host of Anglican reformers are rightly understood to be shoulder to shoulder with the, with the historic greats like Martin Luther and John Calvin and Ulrich Zwingli and these people. And the fact that over the centuries this truth had been obscured was, uh, was you know, in some people's minds something that should be, um, uh, was a problem. But fundamentally, from my way of thinking as a younger man, the problem was that it had obscured the, the kernel of the entire church, which was this doctrine of justification by faith alone through grace. And if when that was lost, well then it does in fact just become a bunch of liturgy, a bunch of window dressing, a bunch of pomp and circumstance to no end. But I had been so transfixed by this history of the Anglican church through the lives, and in often case the lives given, in service of this message that I said, well that one might be something worth preaching, it might be something worth learning about. And so that's where we went. And so you may be surprised, actually, that years of study did not blunt my passion for this message, which is sometimes often the case. But in fact, we we returned uh, more invigorated, more convicted, and more passionate about exposing the actual biblical and gospel roots of our fair church for the sake of the world, not because the church itself was so important, but because this was the vehicle through which God would bring sinners to salvation. Now, I had the great joy, we went into Berlin, and we learned some German, and I got started in this doctoral program there in Berlin at University of Humboldt, and that was right when the time that the stock market crashed, and all of our beneficent funders said, we have to pay for our own soup kitchen now, (laughs) you know, we we now no longer can help you, so I said, well, that's, I understand, Um, and I reached out to the Anglican bishop and the Episcopal bishop at the time and said, I really need a job. So I will be happy to. Uh, I can play guitar. I can sweep, uh, you know, sweep the floor. I can, I can do whatever you'd like. I really do not want to leave. And thankfully, there was a job available in Vienna, Austria. Now, Vienna uh, has a has a beautiful little. Garrison Church right there by the embassy and one of the benefits that Vienna has of of many is because the UN is there There's an incredible amount of people from all over the world that are brought there from from East Asia from 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 Africa from South America from North America from all over the world to be a part of the UN Well, you may not be surprised You probably well know that there are Anglicans all over the world So if you only have a hundred seats to fill and you're coming from all over the world, we had a fairly full church every Sunday with about half North American or Western sort of expats, Americans, Canadians, British people, and the other half just an entire hodgepodge of all of the various realities of Anglican experience from Guyana in Kenya Nigeria and Sri Lanka and, and New Zealand and all over the world. And it was an incredibly fruitful place to actually work through whether this idea had any purchase, whether it meant anything to the, to the you know, second-generation English-speaking fourth-language fourth, uh, fourth person from Kenya, whether they cared at all about what this, this doctrine in the 16th century had to do with their lives here on the ground. And it was an amazingly fruitful time where I had this, this real joy of being able to study and, and digest on one hand and actually work it out with the various people in, in funerals and baptisms and services and weddings and enable to return to the states much more convicted, much more um, passionate about the fact that when the Bible is simply opened up and expounded to the people, well, then what you are left with is what the Reformers would call the doctrine of justification by faith alone, which is nothing less than the message that Jesus Christ has come to save sinners. That's the message, and it can be obscured. You probably have run into pastors who seem to have done their best to confuse you more about what the Bible says. You know, churches often have um, done their best to make it obscure and, and unclear, but the beauty that the Reformers held on to, which has enshrined in our Anglican tradition, is the simplicity, the clarity, and the the persistence of the Word of God for His people, that when Jesus' voice is heard, His sheep will hear His voice, and they will continue to find comfort and rest just as a child in the arms of a loving Father, so will His children be comforted by the message of His gospel. That's what was recovered at the time of the Reformation, and that's what we continue to to preach, whether it's in an Anglican church or not. It just so happens to be that's usually the only invites I get at this point, so there we go. Okay, so you were thinking, well, what does that have to do with our reading from Mark, right? I know you were. I saw your faces, so I will get there. Because the Mark, this reading that we heard from Mark is the end of chapter 10, Chapter 10 is interestingly situated within Mark's gospel because it's the final chapter before the triumphal entry. You remember the triumphal entry where Jesus on the, col- in the colt, Hosanna in the highest, blesses he who comes in the name of the Lord. The palms are dropped in front of him. And you had this incredible celebration of Jesus, which very quickly, within a week, would turn from cries of Hosanna to cries of crucify him. But you have this is the, the eve of that, is what we hear on Mark chapter 10. And so there's a couple of vignettes that Mark is walking um, his people through in the Gospels that he is using to, to juxtapose people that come to Jesus with all sorts of ideas about who he is and what they can get from him versus who he actually is, which is an interesting uh, it's sort of, it's, a, it's an analogy to the way that people would approach God without the Bible, Because you may have a lot of ideas about God. You may have a lot of ideas even about Jesus. But if they are not run through what God has actually revealed about himself and who he is, well then, well, you're just making it up. And that that's can be um, sort of expeditious to a certain degree, but it won't be coherent with the actual truth of things. So Mark is doing his best to expose to us sort of some of the false assumptions and impressions people have of Jesus over against who he really is as we walk through chapter 10. Now, we won't read the whole chapter, but I will walk through a couple of these vignettes to give you an indication. So in the beginning of chapter 10... We have the Pharisees, you know, it was just sort of a, always one of Jesus's sort of sparring partners on earth. And they come and they said, Mark says this, and the Pharisees came up to him in order to test him and asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? and begins to, as is his, as is his um, sort of pattern, navigate with the Pharisees, and as it were, sort of, um, sort of have this 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 interplay with knowing that they were testing him, and he just lets them. He 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 has this this interaction with them where he sort of navigates out of their grasp. He doesn't allow them. To, as it were, trip him up in his words. And we see in this interaction with Jesus a certain group of people who are trying to figure Jesus out. Trying to, as it were, take him down a notch or two. Perhaps they're, they're trying to, to get in and sort of figure out what is really going on with this guy. And Jesus evades this sort of designation. He evades the, the, the trap that they've laid for him. Now, you'll see people like this down throughout the ages people who are, as it were, intrigued by Jesus. Perhaps you have some friends who acknowledge that maybe he has some good teaching. He had some really insights about love and other things like this, but they keep him at an arm's length. They keep sort of his actual reality at a distance because like the Pharisees, they're sort of circling him, not wanting him or they to get too close. So, immediately, interestingly enough, after this interaction, we have the famous place where Jesus, and I can't help but think of the King James, suffer not the little children to come unto me, right? That let the little children come unto me. Immediately following this interaction with the Pharisees to show that this is how one can approach God himself with faith like a child, not an ignorant, unthinking faith, but an actual trusting and well developed faith. As I say all the time, you know, when I do baptisms, Children may not be able to articulate a lot of things, but they have a lot of beliefs. They have a lot of faith. They are certain that I am not their mother. They are certain of this. They are when they hand it to me. They are certain that I am not the one who feeds them, and that they are surely going to be better off the sooner sooner I can pass them back to their mother. That is deeply held faith by the little babies, and and this is part of what Jesus is saying: is that the faith of a child is not uninformed, but is trusting, is true and pure. And that is how you approach me, not with a test and a trap, because we'll see how, who wins in that interaction. Well, immediately after this, we have the, as it were, the famous interaction of Jesus with the rich Young ruler, you know this man, who comes to Jesus immediately, and he says, "'Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life?' Already indicating the type of relationship that he thinks he has with Jesus as a good teacher. And what does Jesus immediately do? Begin to instruct him. "'Why do you call me good?' he says. "'No one is good except God alone.'" Then he lays out the commandments to which the rich young ruler must have, as we know, was sort of hearing that and sort of straightening up, saying, after Jesus lists the commandments, he says, well, all of these I have followed since I was a youth, ready for, to get his just rewards. And what does Jesus say? looks on him, loves him, and says, one thing you lack. And in a sort of oblique reference to the 10th commandment, which as you probably know is to not covet, he says, go and sell everything you own. Give it to the poor. Follow me. And the man, in an incredible understatement in terms of the translation here, uh, went away disheartened. Well, here we have another person approaching Jesus with the expectation that he knows who he is, he knows what he should have done, and he's expecting now to be justly rewarded for all of his hard labor. All of these I have followed since I was a youth, says this man. And what does Jesus do? Lovingly, yet with with incisive um, clarity about what was actually going on in this man's heart says, well, one more thing you may have overlooked. And the man went away disheartened. We certainly know people like this, people who are perfectly fine with Jesus as long as Jesus is perfectly fine with them. You know this, the people who are excited about going to church and think you should go so that you could act more like, they could act more like you. You know this, right? Well, Jesus, when he is actually engaged with as he is, will send all of these people home discouraged because that's not how he, what he came to bring. So interestingly enough, before the, final, before the second of the final um, interactions Jesus has, there's a, there's a vignette that's interposed here. So after the young man goes away and Jesus says, oh my gosh, it's going to be so difficult for rich people to enter the kingdom of God, He says, in fact, it's going to be more possible for a camel to go through an eye of a needle than the wealthy to inherit the kingdom of God. And his disciples immediately respond appropriately by saying, who then can be saved? Who then can be saved? And Jesus says, well, with God, all things are possible. Whereas with man, this, of course, is impossible. And so we begin to see that he's letting people in into what and why he actually came. So much so that immediately following this is a very helpful heading in our Bible. It says, Jesus foretells his death a third time. So after this interaction with a rich young ruler, who then can be saved? With God it's possible. With man it's impossible. Jesus pulls them aside and says, guys, once again, I'm going to be betrayed, beaten, crucified, and buried. And then I will rise. But just so you know, don't be shocked when it comes. Well, What was the immediate reaction to that from James and John, his beloved disciples, the two people who left everything to follow him? While he was talking about all of this calamity that was going to befall him, James and John were waiting to get him over to the side to what? To ask him if when he comes into power they could share some of his glory. So you have people who are hearing something like, yes, yes, death, crucifixion, buried, yeah, yeah, what, but really, Jesus, like, when, when you get the big office, can I have the, the other corner, right? I mean, can I, can I be your canon if you get to be bishop, you know, sort of thing, and Jesus is, must, not, not, must have been frustrated with him, but you can see the, the, um, the, the sort of revelation here, the, the, the discontinuity There's a famous Anglican uh, theologian pastor named J.C. Ryle, who I was, I preached about this last week, I won't give you the whole sermon again, but um, he has a commentary on the book of Mark, and he speaks about this particular episode as one of the most tragic, tragically revealing um, episodes of the naivete of the, sort of, the, the earnest Christian right and i'm very sympathetic to this as a pastor and an earnest christian myself because what he says is that james and john they rightly saw jesus as ultimately inheriting the crown of glory they saw that but what they didn't know and no one could really appreciate until it happened was that the crown of glory was was only purchased through the walking the way of the cross and that's a tragic reality That's a a heart-rending reality, but that was what the Bible describes as the necessary reality for God to be reconciled to sinners. And when we we look at ourselves, when we look at the Bible, when we consider Jesus and the gospel, if we are somehow unaware of the depth of our need, well, then we certainly won't fully appreciate the height of his salvation in the cross. Which brings us to blind Bartimaeus. The final interaction of Jesus before his triumphal entry. And so we have a man who, ironically, the blind man, sees Jesus most clearly. Because we hear the, um, the description, when they came to Jericho, he was leaving Jericho, and his disciples in a, great clara- in a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside, and when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out, saying what? Son of David, have mercy on me. So, simultaneously, in this juxtaposition of these two appellations, I mean, these two, these two requests, we have the Son of David, the, the, the promised Messiah, 2 Samuel chapter 7, the, the, from the lineage of David would come a Redeemer and a Savior, but how would this Savior come? He didn't say, Son of David, give me more money. Son of David, send me a political system that would work. Son of David, send me a philosophy that will right my life. He, He said, Son of David, have mercy on me. And so you begin to see right there that rightly understood the need in the face of Jesus is the right confession of Jesus having met that very need. This is why the gospel Of justification by faith alone is not a mere academic uh, idea. It's the lifeblood of our entire proclamation to the world, because we know people who have ideas about God, who approach Jesus even with all sorts of expectations, who who have thoughts about themselves that are entirely incorrect, and yet when corrected and, and described and diagnosed properly by the Word of God, like Bartimaeus, it sends people in search of the one who finally can answer the cry of the disciples. Who then can be saved? Well, all who call upon the name of the Lord. All who see in their own lives the need for mercy and then see in the risen, a crucified and risen Lord that mercy having been met. That's the message of the gospel whether it's in a in a liturgical church or a field or under a tree or or in a in a shopping mall it doesn't really matter where as long as that's what's being preached and that is the message that takes sinners and makes them whole that's the one that takes the blind and gives them sight that's the one that brings the hard-hearted into a beating in fleshed reality that cries out with Bartimaeus have mercy on me knowing of that, that mercy has been shown. So, I started, this brings us full circle, <laughs> because as I said, when, when the Bible was put back in the hands of the people, which is just a shorthand for the Reformation, like whatever, and anyone else tells you what the Reformation was about, if they don't mention the Bible being put back in the hands of the people, then you should go find someone else who knows a little bit more about what they're talking about, <laughs> because that's fundamentally what happened was that when Martin Luther was handed a critical edition of the Greek New Testament and began to read for himself what had actually been preserved by God's providence for the sake of his people, it changed the world. And it didn't change the world in, um, in small ways. It changed the world in massive ways because finally, what was actually wrong with humanity, namely the sin and the division between God and man, was clearly articulated and God's answer similarly was clearly given. And that's when people begin to preach. So people begin to preach. That they, they were called to proclaim this message. As I said before a couple of weeks ago, we're not here to sort of persuade you, but to proclaim to you. We're not here to sort of to, to sort of you know try to convince you, but to inform you of what God has done in Christ to save you. Yes, you and all of your all of your internal uh, divides, all of your guilt and fear and shame, that Jesus Christ, as Paul so eloquently puts it in Philippians, has come to save sinners. That's the message of the church. That's the sermon, in fact, that we have. You know, I didn't tell John. I mean, he can watch it, I guess, if he wants. But, you know, if I'm going to give one sermon the rest of my life, well, you know, it's sort of an inside, you know, sort of a pro-tip, preaching pro-tip here. There's actually only one sermon. Uh, There's a lot of applications, you know, and it takes different languages and sort of there's, but there's only one sermon, which is that Christ Jesus has been crucified for your sins and raised for your justification, that he has come to save sinners, that he is the justifier of the ungodly, that he is the the friend who calls to his people and his people hear his voice and find peace and comfort and life in his name. That's the sermon. So I can make it much longer than that, which I have. Um, But nevertheless, we will continue to preach that until he comes again. Because for every sinner who sees in Jesus their crucified and risen Lord, this sermon will continue to be that message that they can never hear enough. They hear it every Sunday, maybe on a Wednesday, maybe Sunday night, maybe there's a podcast you have that you also, you can't hear this enough. You can't sing songs loudly enough about this message, that this life-giving promise that has so transfixed and saved the world that will never, ever let them go. Thanks be to God. Amen.